Hello, welcome. This is our last episode of the season. I can't believe time has flown by so quickly. Um, but we are at the last episode. After this, we're going to be taking a quick break. So I'm super happy that you are all tuning in and joining in on this last episode. It's a bit of a dense topic, so hopefully I don't bore you too much. But before we dive in, let's talk a little bit about social media and how you can keep in contact with me. If you have been enjoying the podcast so far, be sure to go on iTunes and leave some feedback. Uh, you can write a review up. We'll probably be doing uh, a content test during the off season uh, for people who continue to listen and tune in and leave a review we'll give a some type of giveaway i'll announce it on social media um, and so how do you find out about it you can follow me on twitter at a-a-o-l-o-m-i or on instagram at a-a-o-l-o-m-i you can also use the hashtag head on history which i do check out um, so do keep your eye out for any contests and giveaways that will be upcoming. And of course, I always love reading the reviews and what you have to say. I'm all interested in what you'd like to hear about next season. So we're going to start this episode off with uh, trying to explain the contemporary state of Islam. And this is going to be a bit of a dense episode because it's going to be focused really on the intellectual development of Islam. This will set the stage up for season two, which will be uh, coming out in a few weeks, where I will talk more in depth about certain themes like the development of the hijab and Sharia and sexuality in Islam. So we'll be going more in depth, but in order to understand the kind of where things are chronologically, you have to understand the kind of contemporary situation. This all starts with the political de decline of the Muslim empires and the rise or the political rise of the European empires. So roughly around the 18th century or so, what we start to see is Europe really expands. Europe, as a result of the fact that it has very small land territory has to go elsewhere. There's this sort of Malthusian concern. That is that they need to feed their people, that they need to have resources, but they don't have access, direct access on their land. So how do they deal with it? They deal with it by navigating abroad. That is through sailing around the world. And they develop colonies, specifically colonies in Africa and in um, the New World. And as a result, they're able to kind of exploit the natural resources, exploit and extract the natural resources. And this produces a mass amount of wealth, therefore producing the sort of capitalistic economic system that we know today. Capitalism really comes out of colonialism. That's the historical reality of it. That is extracting other people's resources, extracting other classes' labor. Um, on the other hand, you have the Ottomans and the Safavids who were engaged in a political conflict with one another, a territorial battle. Um, they were super rich. They were wealthy, they were stable, but they were fighting with one another. And so they didn't have the same type of concerns or anxieties that Europe did. They didn't need to really create colonies abroad. They were able to extract wealth where they 
they lived and they didn't really fully develop capitalism a system of exploiting labor that is specifically the working class for one person who own or for one class that owns all the means of production and the wealth and so the ottomans and safavids never really developed that the economic system and as a result they don't go through the process of industrialization that we see happen in great britain and elsewhere as europe is industrializing the Ottomans and the Safavids, on the other hand, not being able to really develop that economic system or in, in many ways not taking advantage of colonialism, um, don't, don't develop the kind of power structure needed to resist this growing hegemony over trade um, that we see happening in Europe. So it's kind of weird. It's like this weird irony of history that by not participating in this really horrible historical experience, colonialism, by not taking advantage, by being, you know, economically stable and not needing to develop capitalism, they end up kind of screwing themselves over politically. And the Europe starts to make inroads into the Middle East, both uh, economically as well as militarily. You have corporate endeavors like Britain's uh, East India Trading Company, which tries to provide loans for various Muslim political states, whether it's in India or in Egypt. It gives them, hey, we're going to give you all this money so that you can invest in your infrastructure. But as a result, they then owe mass amounts of debt to the Middle East. Simultaneously, they have these merchant armies that conquer territories. Now, these merchant armies are really interesting, and a study of the kind of East India Trading Company is important to this very day because if you were following along the news, you'll find out that Trump, um, he has an advisor who happens to be the founder of Blackwater, that is a... Um, private army, a mercenary army, if you will, that's been involved in Iraq. And this new plan is to really privatize the war in Afghanistan. That is to fundamentally hand this over to mercenaries and merchants who will go in like a literal colonial structure, extract the wealth out of Afghanistan, the copper, the zinc, all of that, while managing it militarily. So this kind of moment in history that we're talking about seems like it's ancient history, but the reality is it continues to haunt us to this day. You know, I started off this podcast saying history doesn't repeat itself, but it oft rhymes, which is a very famous Mark Twain quote. So we see that once again, that this kind of East India trading company tactic is reemerging. And that's really what's going on in this particular time period, is that you're starting to see a political decline of these empires and an economic and political rise of Europe. And this causes a great deal of anxiety about potency. And so in the Arabian Peninsula, you have this reformer by the name of Muhammad ibn Abdullah, roughly in the 18th century. We don't know his exact date. Uh, birthday, but we do know he was in the 18th century. And he saw the arrival of the Europeans. He's seeing them show up in India. He's seeing them gain inroads into Egypt, not fully into Egypt yet, but he's starting to see them kind of hover. And he saw this as a weakness of the Muslim world, as a weakness of the Muslim political force. Karen Armstrong, the famous historian of religion, notes in her book that Muslims experience God through history. That is that 
what is going on historically is a sign of their closeness to God or distance to God. If they're experiencing a so-called golden age, that means that they're on the right path. But if they're not, that means things have gone askew. So Muslims are very keenly aware of historical experience. And this is really evident in Ibn Abdul Wahhab, who claims that the Ottomans' kind of diverse and tolerant approach to Islam has let the religion become decadent and weak, that their kind of long tradition of, of promoting intellectual diversity, sexual diversity, all of that is it's against, it's an antithesis to Islamic potency, that it is what has allowed Islam to be weak, and that in order to revive it, he needs to uh, institute a sort of new form of militarism. So what he does is he begins a program, a program of purification, and he targets any form of diversity, be it sexual diversity, gender, theological. He attacks the gay uh, guardians of the sacred shrines up until this point for hundreds upon hundreds of years. Muslims had accepted sexual diversity, that love didn't look in a specific way that um, people weren't identified by the way that they loved or what gender they were attracted to or by their sexual orientation. That's not that's a modern invention that really comes out of Victorian era. The very term homosexual and heterosexual, complete in, in, um, inventions, you know, they come out of this moment of anxiety about sexual orientation and gender in Victorian Europe. You don't really see it in, in the Muslim world where people are identified by who they love, who they marry, and who they have sex with. They're identified by their religion. Are you Muslim or are you not Muslim? There's more broad definitions of masculinity and femininity. Uh, beauty is kind of ungendered in that way as well. But Ibn Abdul Wahhab saw that as weakness. He saw the intellectual diversity of Islam. That is the recognition that there are four madhabas that we talked about. Remember the schools of Islamic jurisprudence. And they have disagreements. And those disagreements are perfectly fine. He saw that as a sign of weakness. That there shouldn't be a disagreement. That there needs to be a single interpretation, specifically for him, the Hanbali school, as it comes down vis-a-vis -vis Ibn Taymiyyah. Similarly, he didn't agree with that Shia and Sufi were also Muslims. No, you had to follow the Hanbali interpretation. If you happen to be Shia, if you happen to be Sufi, you also were a sign of the decadence of Islam. So he tries to purify all of this while simultaneously claiming that he is supposedly returning to some form of quote-unquote original Islam. But the reality is that his interpretations were innovative and modern, and they were a reflection of the anxiety of that moment, the fear that something had happened to the potency of Islam. So he was actually breaking with centuries of thinking in which sexual diversity, intellectual diversity, and religious diversity were all inherent in Islam. He was interpreting Islam anew in a completely different context, but he was claiming that it was old. And this is something that is very typical a fundamentalist. We see this with Christian fundamentalists, Jewish fundamentalists, Muslim fundamentalists. They always claim to be returning to some sort of imagined, golden, pure past. But the reality is that they're inventing that past. They're making it up in order to justify their current regime. Now, Ibn Abdul Wahhab wasn't particularly successful at first. He was actually driven out of his homeland. The sheikh of his territory kicked his ass out, and his own brother, Solomon, said, no, fuck this dude. This guy is crazy. He's a fanatic. So they kicked him out, but he was taken in by the sheikh of Diraya, who happened to be a man named Ibn Saud. Now, Ibn Saud and Wahhab formed this alliance. He goes, listen, 
I'll get your back if you get my back. If you support my claim to leadership, I'll support your ideology, what we'll call Wahhabism or Salafism, right? And so these two form this alliance, and the descendants of these two families eventually go on a rampage. They're just killing and or so-called purifying Mecca and Medina. They, they break down tombs, erasing thousands of years of history, cutting down trees that have been there for millennia, for centuries. They're killing uh, Shias and Sufis who had lived in the Arabian Peninsula from the time of Muhammad to the very contemporaneous moment, and instituting this kind of new violent vision of Islam that is rooted in kind of an Arab legitimacy, that is to legitimize this Arab dynasty and to restore this kind of militant uh, power, if you will. But here's the thing. In 1818, the Ottomans rallied their troops, and under Pasha Muhammad Ali in Egypt, they defeated this kind of toxic Saudi-Wahhabi alliance, and they drove it into the desert. You wouldn't even know Wahhabism existed if it wasn't for the fact that during World War I, the British done do something stupid. They done goofed, right? What happened is that they were hoping to get the Arabs to rise up against the Ottomans who were on the other side of World War One, And so they signed this treaty known as the Treaty of Darren with the descendants of the Wahhabi House of Saud alliance. And they said, hey, look, if you fight against the Ottomans, we'll give you Arabia. And this gives birth to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Western intervention, this alliance with this really small sect that had been defeated by the Ottomans, they come out, they start this insurrection against the Ottomans, and as a result, establish one of the most powerful kingdoms on the planet. Now, this is in a theocracy. A lot of people think of Saudi Arabia as a theocracy. It isn't. It's a monarchy. The clerics aren't in charge there. The royal family is. The royal family, however, gives some power to the clerics. Now, thanks to this alliance to Europe and and the kind of wealth that comes with petrodollars, Wahhabism not only takes root in Arabia, but then becomes the kind of foreign policy of Saudi Arabia. It spreads Wahhabism as a form of soft power in order to institute its dominance over the region, the idea being that if we spread Wahhabism, people will then follow our lead. But that's going a little too far into the future, into the modern era. Let's step back a little bit. Let's go back in time and talk about the other anxieties that emerge. That was just one kind of movement, Wahhabism. But what else happens with the arrival of the Europeans? Well, the arrival of the Europeans is really in many ways kind of a shock to the Muslim world, probably the biggest shock since the Mongol invasion that happened all the way in the 13th century. And it produced this anxiety about the potency of Islam. What went wrong? Why was it that the Europeans had industrialized and developed these technological weapons and these vast militaries? Well, the reality was that it was a result in a kind of unintended consequence of colonialism and industrialization. So it wasn't that something went wrong. It was that the Muslim world wasn't engaged in those type of, of, of military and economic endeavors. So you have these thinkers like the Tunisian Khair al-Din al-Tunisi, who saw European political institutions as sort of the 
key to reclaiming that power. He saw democracy and the social institutions as a very important way of reviving the potency of Islam. He wanted the Ottomans to restore the caliphate. So we again see the kind of old language of the caliphate, which fell out of favor with the coming of the Mongols. Remember, we talked about this with the decline of the Abbasid caliphate and the rise of the kind of localized expressions of Islam. He wants to, to see, he there's this language that returns again, that we want to see the world united, the Muslim world united under a caliphate. And indeed, we see Ottoman Sultan Abdul Majid II um, start to claim that he was a caliph and calls for Muslim unity so that even while the Ottomans are literally using losing territories vis-a-vis -vis things like the Treaty of Berlin, which basically breaks off parts of, of, of the Ottoman Empire, you know, breaks off territories like Bulgaria, uh, pushes the Europeans really push for the uh, autonomy and independence of very local regions. Remember when we talked about the Ottomans, we talked about the Millet, that is that each religious community could govern themselves in the Ottoman Empire so long as they held allegiance to uh, the overarching empire. Well, those local communities, those millets, eventually start to have their own political and nationalist designs. And they look to Europe and try to and import ideas like la patrie, that is, the idea of the state of a fatherland, and claim that they too want a state. And the Europeans are like, hey, if it fucks over the Ottomans, I'm so down with this. And so they start to support these kind of movements. And the Treaty of Berlin and other treaties really indicate the decline of the Ottoman territorially. And so the Ottomans turned to religion as a way of trying to maintain their power. So Khair al-Din al-Tunisi was really one of the early pan-Islamists or Islamic modernists. Now pan-Islamism is a particular movement that we're going to talk about. He wrote in his book, Aqwam al-Masalik fi ma'arifat awhal mamlik. Oh man, let me just tell you, trying to read Arabic on the podcast is a pain in the ass. But basically what that means is surest path to know the conditions of the safe. And what he says is that his aim or what he sought to do was to restore, quote, what was taken from our hands, which is basically the independence and potency of the Islamic world. He felt that the coming economic and physical colonial influence of the Europeans was taking something. And he argued that constitutional democracy is perfectly in line with Islamic shura. Now remember when we talked about the early caliphate with the Rashidun, we talked about how the first caliphs were elected through council, through an elected member, um, a party who would, or a group that would then appoint the caliph, a sort of parliamentary, early rudimentary parliamentary system. So he saw constitutional democracy and Islamic shura as, as compatible with one another. And he argued that many of the principles of democracy are already inherent in Islam. Now, contemporaneous to Khair uh, al-Din, there is Jamal al-Din al-Afghani and his student Muhammad Abdu, who really are postulate the beginnings of pan-Islamism. Now, the tricky thing with al-Afghani is that he didn't actually write a lot down, and most of what we know about him comes from Muhammad Abdu, his student. So we often say Al-Afghani and Abdu together. Um, and they're, you know, they're thinking kind of blurs who's who. So we're just going to say Al-Afghani. But no, when I say Al-Afghani, I'm saying Al-Afghani and Abdu. So Al-Afghani is a bit of a trickster character in history. Now, he's fascinating. I studied him for my math. I did my thesis, my master's thesis, actually, on him. It was a shitty thesis. But I've rewritten it a few times, and there's a, uh, an article that'll be coming about him. But he's super, super fascinating to me. He's called Al-Afghani, which means from Afghanistan, but he was likely from Asadabad, Iran, which means that he was 
likely raised or educated in the sort of rationalist Mutazili tradition that was still part of Shia Islam. And you can check out our uh, our discussion about the Mutazili and the Ashari debates uh, or the Ahli al-Hadith debates when we talk about the development of Islamic orthodoxy. Now, he was a fascinating dude because he constantly caused fights. Everywhere he went, he was a bit of a firebrand. So unlike Khair al-Din, who was much more of a, a, a really rational thinker, al-Afghani was more of a revolutionary. And so he would go to, the, he would be patronized by these kind of local rulers, but he often gave these giant fiery speeches that caused riots and uprisings. Now, he was uh, the advisor of King Dost Muhammad Khan and ancestor of mine in Afghanistan, but then he got kicked out because he was causing too much issue. He was in Egypt, but all his talk about the British, because the British were starting to gain control of Egypt, he got kicked out of there. He urged the ulema in Iran to oppose the British monopoly over tobacco. This led to one of his students actually assassinating the Shah of Iran. So he was a bit of a troublemaker. Um, and he spent the rest of his life, the end of his life, just kind of being under house arrest in, in Istanbul under the Ottoman rule. So he was a bit of a trouble maker i think he died if i'm not mistaken i think he died from throat cancer but he spent a lot of his early years in india and i think this is what formed a lot of his opinion on one hand he was deeply drawn to the sort of rationalism and science that he saw amongst the british but he had a deep deep hatred of colonialism and british governance and as a result he was accused of being a russian spy now this was the time period where the great game was going on the great game was a conflict between European powers, namely the Russians and the British. The Russians and the British were trying to gain territories. Britain had India, and uh, Russia was making inroads into Iran. So in order to cut off the Russian influence, the British invaded Afghanistan. So you see how most of the Middle East is being kind of carved up by these great imperial forces. What's interesting about Al-Afghani is that he's, unlike Khair al-Din, he's less Ottoman-focused. He's not particularly interested and the Ottoman sultans suddenly becoming caliphs. Instead, he's he argues for more nebulous Islamic polity, what we call pan-Islamism. He sees the kind of ummah as a whole. He argues Muslims everywhere should be one political, civil, social unit. And it didn't matter if you were Sunni or Shia. His pan-Islamism was very nebulous and was ecumenical. It was about, look, the Europeans are coming to our shores. They're about. They took India. They're about to take Egypt. They're going to carve up our lands. We need to unite, regardless of what our difference is in. So, in many ways, very different from Ibn Abdul Wahhab, which was about really restricting the definition of Islam in a violent way in order to establish some type of of of. of power to fight back. Al-Afghani, on the other hand, was about defining it as broad as as possible. It didn't matter whether you were Mutazili. It didn't matter whether you were Ashari, whether you followed Muhammad al-Ghazali, or you followed Ibn Arabi, or you followed Ibn Taymiyyah, or if you were Shia, or a Sunni, or what madhab you were part of. Instead, it was about joining together under one Ummah that was united in this sort of rationalist Islam that could defend against the power of the European. Um, and for him in particular, technology became the sign of potency. That if Islam were to unite and adopt some of the, the technological practices that is industrialized, it could restore its own power. It's interesting that both uh, Khairul al-Din and Jamal al-Din al-Afghani are inspired by Ibn 
Khaldun's idea of civilizational cycles. And we talked a little bit about Ibn Khaldun, this idea that civilizations rise and fall. And Al-Afghani actually writes to one of these French Orientalists known as Ernest Renan. Ernest Renan gives this lecture known as Sayin et Islam, that is science and Islam. And he argues that Islam has is, is backwards and that Islam has, the Muslim is the victim of Islam and that religiosity and dogmatism has trapped the Muslim. And Al-Afghani writes in response, he goes, yes, we have fallen behind, but the key is fallen behind. That is, civilization continues to move along, that it moves in cycles, that we can revive our power. We, we jumped ahead when we were very early on, but now we may have fallen a little bit behind. And this is kind of unique to Al-Afghani, this idea you know, of that civilization can be revived. But we see how Ibn Khaldun's thinking inspires a lot of these people. Now, Al-Afghani becomes the inspiration for both the Muslim reformers as well as the so-called Islamists alike. So you have people like Muhammad Abdu who continue his message versus Rifa Tahtawi uh, or Rifa Rashid who, who do completely take it in a different direction. And we see that pan-Islamism breaks apart. On one hand, you have those who, who become part of the uh, Islamic modernist school and those who really fuse it with Wahhabism. We're going to talk a little bit about that. But because I mentioned Iran, let's pause there because something interesting happens. So when we talk about the decline of the Ottoman Empire, there's also the decline of the Safavids. The Safavids actually fall apart and Iran or the territory of the Iranian highlands becomes uh, ruled or is ruled by a series of local dynasties, uh, the Qajars, the Pahlavis, etc. And most of these tend to be quite oppressive. But the Safavids did something, and this is their lasting legacy. Remember when we talked about the Safavids, in that they developed what is known as the Ayatollahs. These are the Mujatahids, uh, Mujtahids, I'm sorry. Mujtahids are these kind of legal experts. These Ayatollahs become super important. Because they were trying to convert everyone to Shiism, they brought the Ayatollahs and the Mujtahids in order to become kind of the clerical class, the people who would give them religious legitimacy, legitimacy right? They would say, hey, you need to follow the Safavid Shahs, uh, Shah Abbas, etc. And so the Ayatollahs developed their own power. They became the legal experts and they were a source of religious authority. And as a result, became quite autonomous. So when because the Safavids were long, so when the Safavids collapse and these subsequent dynasties come about, the Ayatollahs remain as a sort of rock of stability. Now, simultaneously, you have uh, Iraq with a series of its shrines. So Ayatollahs could literally leave Iran and go and live in somewhere in Iraq and Basra and Baghdad. And so they would be outside the jurisdiction of these various dynasties, but still still maintain religious authority within Iran itself. This was really fascinating and kind of unique, and it spoke to the author how strong and established the authority of the Ayatollahs were. And the Ayatollahs were deeply, deeply involved in um, uh, political dealings. In the Persian Constitutional Revolution in 1905 to 1911, it was actually uh, Ayatollahs like Muhammad Khazem Khorasani who supported the establishment of a parliamentary system. Without them, there wouldn't be a parliament. And in this moment in the 20th century, you have a figure emerging known as Ali Shariati. And he really was born under the historical context of the oppressive Pahlavi regime. The Pahlavis were modernists. They were about modernizing Iran, adopting European customs, but they were absolute monarchists and they didn't want to share power with anyone. So Ali uh, Shariati grew up in this kind of 
oppressive autocratic regime and he opposed uh, this this regime and he proposed instead something known as red Shiism that is a type of Shia Islam that was more aligned with uh, Gutierrez's liberation theology for Latin America sort of global third worldism that is this idea that uh, within inherent in Islam is a revolutionary spirit. He saw this revolutionary spirit and sought to revive it. And this is um, really trying an attempt on Ali Shariati to kind of revive the Shiism that existed before the quietism of Muhammad al-Baqir and Jafar al-Sadiq. So we talk about how uh, the Shiatul Ali, before being a theology but a political party, resisted the Umayyad Khalifs. And eventually, with their suppression under the Umayyads and then eventually under the Abbasids, they develop a much more quietist turning inward under Muhammad Baqir and Jafar al-Sadiq. And you can uh, check out that episode. It's a couple episodes back. But this, he was Ali Shariati tries to go back to that revolutionary spirit now with a fully developed Shia theology that came out of the Ayatollahs, right? Out of the Ayatollahs and, and, and the world work of al-Baqir and al-Sadiq, and he's influenced a great deal by socialist and Marxist theory of a classless society, and governance that was more than just administration, but that focused on guiding society towards a righteous and moral state. And he saw the Shia clergy, the Ayatollahs, who had developed such great strength as part of that guidance. And so Ali Shariati's red Shiism starts to take root amongst intellectual class, amongst young students that are attending universities, that are seek, seeing the kind of oppression of the Pahlavis and the rise of Europe as a threat to Iranian sovereignty. So when the United States removes the democratically elected Mohammed Mosaddegh, this is the prime minister, because this man threatened to nationalize Iran's oil, therefore threatening the hegemony of Great Britain and the United States, an MI6, MI5, and CIA coup was uh, underway. The U.S. overthrows uh, Mohammed Mazadeh and reinstalls the kind of oppressive pro-Western Shah, and this leads to a revolution. In 1979, a coalition of students of Shariati's Red Shiism with Marxist students, workers, and women overthrow the government and vote on an Islamic Republic of Iran. This is a government that included a fusion of Western political ideology, republicanism, constitutionalism, with Islamic ideology. You had a constitutional republican government in which you could vote, but it was overseen or oversaw by a guardian government, a permanent class of clerics and ayatollahs and jurists known as valiyat fiqh right? So in some ways it kind of weirdly resembles Plato's Republic. You have this kind of philosopher king, the Ayatollah Khomeini, who ensures societies headed in the right direction while you have a Republican government underneath. And this fusion of Islamic ideology with Western ideology is very, very important for understanding the rise of political Islam. It's what shapes the kind of pan-Islamism al-Afghani. Post-al-Afghani, pan-Islamism starts to develop this mixture, this fusion. And the Iranian revolution is a super weird revolution, right? Revolutions usually happen when people are economically disenfranchised, when they've lost a massive war, all sorts of things. But in reality, uh, Iran is quite prosperous. You have a uh, uh, all sorts of uh, uh, 
different classes, the workers are able to find decent jobs, uh, the elites have developed a strong uh, establishment in, in the universities. So it's a bit of a bizarre revolution in that regards, but it is symbolic of what we see happening in the broader Muslim world. So in places like India, you have figures like Syed Ahmed Khan who are arguing to develop a government more along the lines of Europe. But you have contrast that with people like Maududi, who, like uh, Shariati, drew upon Marxist ideals to reinterpret jihad. He saw jihad as a sort of Maoist people's war. That is, a war in which there was a vanguard of Muslims, of Muslim warriors that would defend the frontiers of Islam. So he saw Islam as a territory, as sort of a class warfare, a, a warfare between those in the Middle East and those in the West. Maududi saw the Sharia as unchanging. It is fixed in time. Instead, what Islam needed was not reinvention, but military defense, the vanguard, the kind of people's war. And he equated power with jihad. And along with Wahhab, Ibn Abdul Wahhab, he really becomes the kind of founder of so-called fundamentalism in the Muslim world. He actually establishes a political organization known as Jamaat al-Islamiyya, which is still in existence to this very day. Now, this contrasts with what we talked about when it comes to jihad. Right, we talked about jihad much more either as an attempt to kind of as a social attempt to create social justice, right? As in the case of Muhammad, we saw jihad as a sort of defensive struggle against oppression and tyranny, right? Muhammad talks about the lesser and greater jihad. Muhammad also talks about that the greatest jihad is a word of truth spoken against tyranny and oppression. So we see jihad in that early stage, how it then transforms as a def territorial defense during the Crusades and the coming of the Mongols. And that's adopted by the Ottomans and Safavids. It's a pr done by a professional class. Just not everyone rises up and, and commits jihad. You have the Janissaries and people who actually do it. And you also see this really epitomized during this colonial pe period under someone like Amir Abdul Qadir, who lived in Algeria in 1830. He fought against the French, and he led his people uh, to, in resistance against the colonial French forces. And he was such a powerful and successful person that the French basically burned down all of Algeria in order to capture him and arrest him. And there's this really fantastic moment in which he has to, he's forced to surrender, in which he marches into enemy territory on his horse dressed in all white and he throws his sword down into the sand he was such this kind of amazing figure he would uh if he captured any french forces he would treat them well he would release them he did not allow anyone to torture or abuse prisoners he would not cut down trees he would not attack civilians he only fought against the french colonists and so as a result there was a movement in france to free him from prison and eventually he was sent over into the levant uh kind of jordan and Lebanon. And at one point when there was an uprising, there was an uprising of people and they were uh, fighting and there was a revolution. This uh, guy, Amir Abdul Qadir, went outside and he told the Maronite Christians who lived in this kind of Lebanese territory to come into his home and he personally protected them. He stood outside his door with his bodyguards at his old age and protected the religious minority. So you had on one hand these kind of people who still invoke the old tradition of jihad. That was a jihad that saw it as a struggle, not necessarily always internal, but also as a physical fight. Um, 
They also fought back, but it was a sort of notion of just conflict, a struggle against oppression and tyranny and colonialism, contrasted with Maududi, who saw it as violent revolution, as fighting against this Western force, right? And, and this becomes clear, this division between these two of West and Islam starts to take root in pan-Islamism. In Egypt, you have people like Hassan al-Banna, right? He was a student of al-Afghani, and he establish, establishes what's known as the Ikhwan, or the Muslim Brotherhood. Ooh, I know I said Muslim Brotherhood. All the Islamophobes are freaking out, right? Because the Muslim Brotherhood is like the modern-day Protocols of Zion bullshit. Uh, you know, it's Protocols of Zion is this fabricated fake document that anti-Semites use to justify, oh, look, the Jews are taking over the world. We start to see that same kind of rhetoric now in contemporary politics. I mean, during the election campaign of Hillary Clinton, uh, Huma Abedin was often accused of being Muslim Brotherhood. Keith Ellison, uh, Representative Keith Ellison, the Muslim congressman, is accused of being uh, a, a Muslim secret Muslim Brotherhood. So the Muslim Brotherhood has taken on this kind of scary connotation, but their history is actually quite simple. They're actually rooted in charity and education. What they wanted to do is they wanted to create a Muslim civil society, which is fundamentally essentially peaceful. It's a movement that does not is not interested in violent overthrow or jihad, but they did want to create they were pan-islamists students of al-afghani they wanted to create an islamic state a big massive islamic state that spanned from one end of north africa to all the way the other end of the middle east and south asia in which muslims were all united and they wanted to do so by creating charitable institutions and educated uh, education centers to create a sort of civil society of enlightened muslims but then you had a figure like Said qutb Said qutb was a man who fused the Muslim Brotherhood's idea of a civil society with the ideas of Maududi from India, with the kind of vanguard, revolutionary, violent uh, jihad. And he was educated in the U.S. In fact, when he came to the U.S., he was totally um, fascinated. On one hand, he loved the kind of technology and modernism, but he hated the, the kind of racism. He was shocked by the racism, right? This is a man who was born in Egypt, too. In Egypt, you have a mixture of Arab and African people all living together. And so coming to the United States was a shock, a culture shock for him. The amount of racism he saw against black Americans. And in fact, in his book, Milestones, he actually talks about the racism of the West as one of the signs of, Is of the West's decadence in Islam's so-called superiority. He was also totally taken aback by the so-called sexual uh, per permissiveness of the West. And in reality, what it was, if you read some of his, like, uh, diaries. He was just bitter that white women wouldn't sleep with him. So he was a, he was clearly a dude who had who didn't have enough sex in his life was the problem. He was really bitter that white women wouldn't give him the time of day, and so he that was part of his kind of frustration. But he was suppressed in 1954. He come he's in Egypt, and Jamal Abdel Nasser, who was the leader at the time, puts him in jail. And this is important here, this dynamic. You had, on one hand, these group of elites, these secularists, right, These uh, that became the Baathists and the Arabs, pan-Arabists, like Jamal Abdel Nasser. We see the kind of remnant of this. Saddam Hussein was another one. We see the remnant of this today with Bashar al-Assad. Bashar al-Assad comes out of that kind of pan-Arab, Arab secularist. These people were inclined a little bit more towards Russia, and they were elites who benefited from the colonial structure of the Middle East. You had this thing called the Sykes-Picot Agreement in which Europe, after the Ottoman Empire falls, goes, hey, 
We're going to carve this shit up for ourselves. And they divide up the territories or without any care in the fucking world for what was people's lives were like on the ground. People who were villagers and lived side by side was suddenly divided by invisible lines. Things like Lebanon and Syria and Jordan and Iraq and all of these kind of new territories emerged that didn't exist beforehand. Take the uh, boundaries or borderlines of of Jordan, right? There's this famous story. It's called Winston's Hiccup, sometimes also known as Churchill's uh, Sneeze. Basically, what happened is Winston Churchill in 1921 uh, was the Secretary of State for the colonies, and he was drawing the borderline or the boundary between Transjordan and Saudi Arabia. And apparently, before he was doing so, he had a specifically and exceptionally liquid lunch, by which we mean the motherfucker was drunk, right? So he had drunk a lot of alcohol for lunch, and then he was drawing up this border, and he hiccuped, and it forced his arm to sharply cut away, and they kept it. That was the border. That's the border of Jordan with Saudi Arabia. If you go and look at the right now a map of Jordan, Saudi Arabia, and you see this weird, like, sharp divot... That's because Churchill was drunk and he had a hiccup. So this is what happens. These kind of weird territories emerge with random borderlines. And this causes a lot of tension. So on one hand, these borderlines benefited the elites, specifically these kind of Arab modernists who become pan-Arabists. These are people who are like, we Arabs are going to unite together. We're going to maintain our power. We're going to modernize society, modernize our governments. But these Arab pan-Arabists were favored more towards um, Russia, and this pissed off the U.S. and the West. On the other hand, the U.S. and the West, these Pan-Arabists were like suppressing people like the Muslim Brotherhood, under Said Qutb, who had become a little bit more violent because of their suppression, and they said, you know what, we can favor these so-called Islamists in the Cold War. Many of the Muslim Brotherhood also moved over into Saudi Arabia, where it fused with Wahhabism. So you have this, this kind of critical mass developing. You have the um, jihad ideas of Maududi and the, the kind of transformation of the Muslim Brotherhood under Said Qutb fusing together with Wahhabism in Saudi Arabia. And so in 1979, when the U.S. provokes, and yes, I'm using that word very deliberately, provokes Russia into a war in Afghanistan, um, there's, this is kind of the secret history by Brzezinski. Brzezinski argues that, that, hey, we didn't accidentally draw these people into a war. We didn't do it because we were having good intentions or things like that. It wasn't like an accident or the U.S. stepped in chivalrously. I mean, and Brzezinski was the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter, said, according to the official history of the CIA, of the, the official version of history, the CIA to the Mujahideen began during 1980. That is to say, after the Soviet army invaded Afghanistan in December 24th, 1979. But the reality, secretly guarded until now, is completely otherwise. It, indeed, it was July 3rd, 1979, that Jimmy Carter signed the first directive for secret aid to the opponent of the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. At that very day, I wrote a note to the president in which I explained to him that, in my opinion, this aid was going to induce a Soviet military intervention. He goes on to say, regret what? Secret, the secret operation was an excellent idea. It had the effect of drawing the Russians into the Afghan trap. And you want me to regret it? The day that the Soviets officially crossed the border, I wrote to the President Carter, we now have the opportunity to give the USSR its Vietnam War. 
He says, he goes on, what is more important to history of the world, the Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet empire, some stirred up Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? And that that's the reality of it. So this Afghan war, the Soviet-Afghan war is really the one history you need to take away to understanding the contemporary Middle East and the kind of state of Islam to some degree. You have these violent, oppressive regimes at the top from secularists, Soviet, Marxist, whatever you want to call them, that, tend, that are oppressing uh, religious movements, uh, be they the Muslim Brotherhood, be they any other movement. They oppress them, they force them down. Then you have a foreign power, usually the West or Great Britain, who hoping to undo the power of the Soviets, arm those oppressed and suppressed Muslim movements or or, or uh, religious movement who arm them and riot and use them to fight against the Soviets. Uh, I mean, there's pictures of Mujahideen sitting with Ronald Reagan. And the U.S. favored these Islamists. They gave them money. They gave them weapons. And it's not just the U.S. Uh, Israel does it as well. We'll talk about that in a history of Israel and Palestine and that conflict really in the next episode, in the next season. But for now, just understand that it happens in Israel as well. So you had the kind of pan-Arabists, just like Jamal Nasser in Egypt, you had uh, Yasser Arafat of the PLO, who were secular Arabs in Palestine. And you had Israel who goes, we need to come up with a group that will oppose these secular Arabists. And so they started to fund and support a guy named Sheikh Ahmad Yassin in the 1980s, who eventually goes on to form Hamas. Today we talk about Hamas as the great enemy of Israel, and Israel talks about it as a terrorist organization. But Israel originally, in its origin, supported um, Hamas as an opponent of uh, the PLO, as an alternative to the PLO. Both the United States, Great Britain, Israel, and a lot of these kind of Western countries supported these early Islamists, arming them and radicalizing them as an opponent, as a means of overthrowing their opponents, whether it was the Arab secularists, whether it was the Soviets, or whatever. But the Wahhabis, or what becomes known as Wahhabism, really starts to take shape in the Muslim world. And they are supported fundamentally, despite the language of us versus them and West versus Islam. They are funded and supported by Western powers because it serves the kind of geopolitical uh, machinations. Now, Wahhabism becomes really powerful. You see it developing in India with its own brand known as Deobandi or the Ahli al-Hadith. You see it emerging in Indonesia and Malaysia. You see it take root as the formal ideology of the Saudis. But that doesn't mean Wahhabism is the end of Islam or that contemporary Islam is only Wahhabism. That's not true. Sufism continues to emerge in the contemporary moment. You have people like Sudan Sudanese thinkers Hassan Turabi in 1925, who uh, in the early uh, 19th century, that talk about Islam and democracy going hand in hand with one another. Or in 1925, you have Abdul Razak, Abdul Razak, who argues that Islam never gives a specific set of political governments. He, he re completely rejects the ideology of the pan-Islamists. He completely rejects the sort of uh, notion of a singular caliphate. He completely rejects 
rejects the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood civil society and says there is no single Muslim or Islamic form of government. Abdul Razak goes that Islam is diverse, that historically it never prescribes a religion, a, a, a particular political state. Instead, it describes a political state. It says that the state is just, that it protects its people regardless of what religion they are, that ethnic and religious and sexual and 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 gender minorities are all protected under this state, that it upholds a sense of equality and justice, that it is righteous, that it does not go to war needlessly, that it does not hurt or harm the poor or the weak, that it protects the orphan and the widow. He argues that the Islamic forms of government are not prescriptive but descriptive, and that anyone who prescribes a form of government, like a caliphate, and says that this is the only form, it has to be an Islamic caliphate or pan-Islamism or whatever, or some form of theocratic state that they are deliberately inventing something new, that the only historical reality is a descriptive state, that at the heart of Islam is not an argument of what, how the Islamic community has to govern itself, but an argument that there are a set of principles by that which the Islamic community must uphold, and those qualities are justice, equality, peacefulness, tolerance, kindness, charitableness, generosity, or diversity, uh, intellectualism, all of these are at the heart of Islam, and that these descriptions are what people are supposed to cultivate, that how the government looks, whether it's a democracy or a caliphate, that doesn't matter. What matters is that these rights, these these humanistic rights need to be protected, and we see this in the, the writings of people like Abdul Razak, and this becomes the kind of contemporary moment of Islam, the debate that is ongoing, not between a prescriptive straight state and a descriptive state. But this is best understood as a moment in which Islam is truly and fully globalized. I think the best representation of this kind of global moment was this uh, statue that was developed by a guy named Frederick Auguste Bartholdi. He was a French man who in 1855 visited several Egyptian places like the Nubian monuments of Abu Simbel. And he was fascinated by these kind of different architectures and design. And so he just wanted to create these colossal structures. And he wanted to, he channeled all of that into a statue for the inauguration of the Suez Canal. And he envisioned a fella, that is a Egyptian peasant woman, robe clad, um, a holding a light uplift as a sort of celebration of uh, the Suez Canal, and that this would stand at Port Said, and she would hold up this light while being very clearly an Egyptian peasant. This was a fusion of sort of the colossal of Rhodes, uh, the Roman goddess of freedom, Libertas, and an Egyptian woman. The Egyptians eventually decide not to buy the statue or commission, and so it wasn't made. But Frederick Auguste Bartholdi never forgets, never forgot his design, and so he kept working at it. And in addition to uh, uh, a man named Gustave Eiffel, yes, the guy from the Eiffel Tower, he eventually creates the statue, making it a little bit more Greek, but still drawing upon his inspiration of the uh, 
powerful, strong, liberated Egyptian peasant woman. She now currently stands in New York as the Statue of Liberty. That's right, the Statue of Liberty, with a symbol of kind of freedom and the acceptance of immigrants and the acceptance of people, was originally designed as a Muslim woman. She's a fusion of Muslim woman with Roman goddess and Greek statuary. And that, I think, is perfectly encapsulates this moment in which we see Islam interacting with the, with the Western world, adopting certain practices, be it democracy or Marxism, and really rethinking what it means to be modern, what it means to have a state, what a society looks like. This is the Muslim contemporary movement. You have reform movements, you have revival movements, modernism, you have Islamic feminism with the rise of people like Amina Wadud, famous, famous scholars of Islam who, and Layla Ahmed who re interpret Islam along feminist lines or who argue that at the heart of Islam's egalitarianism is a sort of feminist message. We see revival movements and we see the endurance of Wahhabism supported by petrodollars dollars and uh, uh, supported by Western intervention in the Middle East and the desire to oppose any, any uh, geopolitical alignments. All of these are the contemporary Muslim moment. So, I am actually going to end the podcast there. I know it was really complicated, this kind of intellectual history of contemporary Islam and political Islam that ends really in the 20th century. There's so much more we're going to discuss in Season 2 where we're going to dive deep into some of these political movements like the Muslim Brotherhood and Wahhabism, and we're going to explain their histories in detail. Before we... Uh, kind of end. I want to end with some book recommendations, which I think are going to be fantastic for understanding this moment. My first book recommendation is Asma Afsaruddin's The First Muslims History and Memory. This is a really interesting book. I'm not sure if it's the best book in, in what I'm uh, going to recommend. It is an interesting book, certainly. Uh, it's by One World Publications. She's a brilliant scholar of Islam, a historian of Islam. Uh, she is an associate professor of Arabic and Islamic studies at the University of Notre Dame. So she does, she's an expert in medieval Islamic thought. She does kind of something weird where she talks about the first Muslims and kind of Wahhabis, like a modern kind of Wahhabism, and tries to go, oh, well, the Wahhabis are wrong. This is not how the early Muslims lived. But And I know that's one approach. I, my approach, I prefer to argue not just that the Wahhabis are wrong, but to say Wahhabis exist within their own historical context. There is no return to the 7th century. You live in the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century. That's a different historical moment. So I think there is some some flaws, I think, in her approach, but it's still a very good book. Um, so check it out, Asma Afsaruddin's The First Muslim's History and Memory. I liked it a lot. I enjoyed it. It's really informative. You could tell she has a uh, she uses a vast array of Arabic sources that chronicle the lives of Muhammad and the companions. So she takes these kind of two time periods and put them side by side with one another. Um, so it's a really, really good book. I would also recommend a slightly older book, Albert Hurani's Arabic Thought in the Liberal Age. Um, it's written, I think, in the early 60s, maybe in the 80s. I'm not sure. I forgot the actual date. Um, I was in the 80s, 1983, but it was such a, it's such a great, great book. It is kind of 
really summarizes all the different movements from Muhammad Abdu to Rifa Tahtawi to Al Afghani, all of them that you in this kind of moment he calls the liberal age, what historians call the Nahada or the Arabic Renaissance, which is the period we've talked about so far, is really a great book. Al Burhani eventually becomes, or his book is called, he actually, there's a book prize named after him, the Al Burhani Book Prize. Um, in addition to that, I would recommend a, a kind of a follow up that was uh, written not as a singular book, but as an edited volume by Jens Hansen and Mark Marks, Max Weiss. It's called Arabic Thought Beyond the Liberal Age Towards an Intellectual History of the Nahda. Really, really good book. Three, these three books together, I think, are going to be ideal for understanding the intellectual movements we've discussed. And again, we're going to go back to these movements in the second uh, season when we're going to go down more in depth. Hopefully, you've enjoyed uh, the season so far. You've enjoyed the episodes that we've put forth. I really wanted in the first season to go over the chronology, to really establish a kind of timeline chronology and basic structure for how Islam has been shaped by history. That religions don't exist as kind of pristine, unchanged things, but are shaped by the experiences of the believers. Hopefully, you've gotten a better understanding of how soon Sunnism and Shiism emerges. What is the Muslim's relationship to the caliphate and the state? How that has been shaped by things like colonialism and the Mongol invasion, the relationships in gender, uh, what were the role of men and women, uh, what were the role of slaves in society, of workers, of people who are Arab and people who are non-Arab. Hopefully this was an, a fun and interesting introduction. Please let me know if there's any topic you want me to cover or that I've covered but you want me to go over in more detail. You can tweet at me like I mentioned or Instagram me at A-A-O-L-O-M-I. You can use the hashtag head on history. We are going to take a few weeks break and we will be back in, a, in roughly maybe five or six weeks with season two which is going to go much further in depth until then thank you for tuning in hopefully you enjoyed it and remember stay smart my beautiful history nerds <laughs>